Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter. Welcome to episode 22. On this episode, we will cover three Seventh Circuit cases this week, taking the seventh stretch. Last week, we taped a special episode with Kevin O'Connor, who represented the appellant in Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village. And last week, the Illinois Appellate Court reversed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the defendants. We'll talk more about that during our Prediction Sure to Go Wrong segment. Today, as noted, we have three Seventh Circuit cases. The first case is Appellant versus Appellee. Yeah, that's the case name. A case that involves electronically stored information and a subpoena. The second is Continental Casualty versus certain underwriters at Lloyd's, which is an, a reinsurance case about the result of the arbitration. And the third case is Christopher Bilek versus Federal Insurance Company, in which the Seventh Circuit will consider whether TCPA claims were properly dismissed without leave to amend by the district court. As always, a packed in podium and panel podcast so let's turn to our first case today appellant and as noted yep that's the name of the case on the public facing website of the seventh circuit on an oral argument from late last month there are, are surely real names but it's a one of those names is probably the united states of america it, it sure sounded like it <laughs> and it's under seal and it, it's a white collar investigation of uh potential you know criminal activity of the corporation And the case concerns objections by the object of a grand jury subpoena for electronically stored information, or ESI, and Pat will get into (laughs) not using ESI when you're in front of uh, the the Seventh Circuit. uh, At least not Joe Deesherbrook. Right. He didn't like that. That the appellant contends was overbroad despite the use of search terms. And, And the panel here was tough on both the appellant and the government. Judge Easterbrook asked about a special master and whether one had been requested. At one point, he chided the advocate for appellant for using the initials ESI and noted that the court is generalist. And while the advocate might have favored initialisms, he asked him that he please use words. And, another, and, 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 and he he said that as he used the word yeah. initialism, yeah. which I'm not sure that's a word. But I'm, I'm not either. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I, I wasn't going to argue with him. Right, but, right. He's the judge, so he's right. Yeah. So. And another time, he noted Boolean connectors and search terms and online searches, not finding what the searches were looking for. And one of the, one of the things that, if you listen to the oral argument, that will come out uh, pretty strongly is that this case has been going on for some period of time. The uh, target of the of the subpoena has, I guess, not been fully forthcoming with the records, and and has uh, not responded to search terms and has complained about those search terms. And so this has been going on for uh, some period of time, and that came through in some of the oral arguments. Pat will talk about. And, you know, as we've said on this show, discovery issues do not reach courts of review very often. Uh, so this is our second episode where we have discussed such an issue on episode 17 of the podcast in which we addressed an objection to a medical examiner only Supreme Court Rule 215 uh, covered another such instance where the courts of appeal are actually looking at discovery issues. As noted, this is a case under seal with a grand jury involving some sort of white collar investigation. 
Pat, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the oral argument and some lessons that you should learn if you're in front of Judge Easterbrook. Thank you, Dan. Uh, and lesson num pro tip number one, <laughs> don't use acronyms before Judge Easterbrook. And he'll let you do it for a little while. But like on the fourth or fifth time, and, and, it, and it's, it happened when the uh, when counsel for appellant called it the EC, the ESI world, in the ESI world. And, <laughs> and world Judge Easterbrook said, what world? What was that? Um, so don't do that. Don't use, don't use uh, acronyms. Not a fan. And pro tip number two is don't use false flattery with Judge Easterbrook. Uh, counsel for the appellee for the government tried that one with Boolean search terms and, hey, you know, I'm sure your Westlaw skills are better than mine. Oh, no, I'm sure yours are fine. We're comparing Westlaw skills. Right. Um, but it, this is serious, though, in, in this connection. And it, let's go back to the first one with the acronyms. And Judge Easterbrook pointed out quite rightly, that the courts, the appellate courts are generalists. And, and let's think about that. And that's really particular to the federal courts at the district court level, even at the, uh, um, in a way that it really isn't at the state court level, at the trial, state courts at the trial level. And let me ferret that out a little bit. You'll go into a federal courtroom, or at least when you used to go into a federal courtroom, you'd see a group of criminal matters come first because the marshals need to get the prisoners back across the way to the to the Metropolitan Correctional Center. Um, then they'll then it'll be a patent case followed by a contract case followed by an appointment case followed by you know an insurance Pat case or anything you, right who knows what class action case whatever it happens to be it's it's a it's a zoo. You go into a state court, you're going to see in a chancery division they're going to see you know some sort of declaratory relief. Uh, insurance coverage, perhaps some contract disputes, this kind of a thing. You go into a case in the our, uh, room in the 22nd floor, it's going to be construction accidents. With the law division, it's going to be construction accidents. It's going to be uh, medical malpractice, car accidents, some sort of tort. You go to 26th and Cal, it's all criminal matters, and they've got those split up between misdemeanors. and So they're very specialized, the trial judges, in a way that they just aren't in the district court and the federal court. Now, when you get to the appellate level of the state court, they go back to being generalists again. Right. Uh, and this is a distinction with Indiana where they have a tax court that's separate, uh, a tax court intermediate level of review that's separate from the other court. In Texas, they have a criminal, an entire criminal system of appellate review separate from the civil appellate review. So, in, but in general, the, the federal courts are, those judges are generalists. The exception is, is that some district court judges get to beg off of patent cases right. uh, because they, they don't have the specialization or the experience to really handle those efficiently in some cases. So they can they can ask to not have those, is my understanding. I think that's right. Um, but that, that's really an exception. So anyway, um, that's an important thing to understand about, about the way the courts work. Um, but as Dan said, this is about a two-year-long saga about a grand jury subpoena. And... It seems that the subpoena was issued to the the target of whatever this investigation is about. We don't know. It's some corporation. That's all we some know. Some corporation. And it seems to have something to do with trading of securities, perhaps. I, I can't tell. Um, and this seems to be the third try they've tried to get these documents. And the first try, they produced some documents. The judge wasn't, the district court judge who was unidentified, didn't make, did, wasn't happy. The second time, the judge wasn't happy. The third time, he imposed particular search terms, and those produced 
about 230,000 hits. And apparently those hits included wedding photos, funeral photos, vacation photos of various employees of this company. And there was an agreement that there would be able to have 30 days to review for relevance or responsiveness on the photos, but not on the emails themselves. And the entity objected. We're going to produce all these documents. We should be allowed to spend 60 or 90 days to do a relevance or a responsiveness review. Now, this is all under Rule 17C of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And uh, Judge Easterbrook brought this up, and I'll read it real quickly. A subpoena may order the witness to produce any books, papers, documents, data, or other objects the subpoena designates. The court may direct the witness to produce the designated items in court before trial or before they are offered in evidence. When the items arrive, the court may permit the parties and their attorneys to inspect all or part of them. Pretty Pretty broad powers under the subpoena. And understand a subpoena is different than a warrant. Right. And what the and what the uh, appellant was arguing was, whoever they are, were arguing, hey, this is essentially a warrant for them to go in and rummage around. Now, when I heard that rummage around, it made me think, hmm, I've heard that before. Right. Oh, that's right. I've written about that before. Right. There's a case called Carlson versus Jerusik, J-E-R-O-U-S-E-K. We'll link to it in the show notes page. Um, that is a second district Illinois appellate court case that f- deals with a civil subpoena. Sorry, not a subpoena, a civil discovery request in a civil court in Illinois state court. But it follows, our rule in Illinois follows the same rules as the federal rules. And what the court said is that the discovery rules do not permit a requesting party to, quote, rummage around the responding party's files for helpful information, end quote. I have a strange suspicion, and in these sealed briefs, they cited this case. Because that's a pretty pretty remarkable coincidence if they didn't, to use the word rummage. Um, Maybe they did, I don't know. But it made me think that that's what they were talking about. And so this leads to the the question of, well, how do you determine what you're supposed to do here? And Judge Easterbrook went right to it. And that was a balancing test. And we got to figure out, he talked about the marginal benefit versus the marginal costs. And let's just say he was really, really unimpressed with the government's answer, which parroted the, the district court's answer as to what the marginal benefit was. You have no idea, counsel, he said, what the ratio is of responsive to unresponsive documents are. You're speculating based upon what they did previously. Right. Um, and so we need to look at rule in, in Illinois uh, in Illinois, it's 201C3, and it takes into account the, um, in particular with regards to electronically stored information, because it's really costly to do this kind of discovery. And it gets into everything. Judge Easterbrook also asked both sides, did you ask for a special master? Because we don't know. We are a court of review, not first review. He didn't say that, but that's essentially his idea. And he asked the government, why didn't you guys ask for a, uh, an in-camera inspection by a special master? Um, you know, that could have been that could have been done and could have figured out what we're actually dealing with here. But instead, they, you're they asking to go blind. Yeah, they don't have a very good answer to to that question. They did they they really didn't. And I, I think it I think the government was really relying upon, well, the judge is really annoyed. The district right. court judge was really annoyed that this respondent wasn't being productive. So we come back to our old friend, Dan. And who's our old friend? 
abuse of discretion. That's right. And that's where 17C really does allow the district court judge to have a broad degree of discretion to enforce the subpoena. Um, there are Fourth Amendment concerns here, at least raised by the appellant. So, but the other thing that is that is important here to, to remember is that the is the government is they're not sure what they're looking for yet, and so or they know what they're looking for, but they they two hundred thirty thousand pages is quite a lot to it be uh, to, or documents, I should say. I don't know if it was pages or documents, but that's a lot. Um, and all they were asking was, for was for sixty to ninety days to review them, and they've spent. I got to imagine far longer than that on this appeal, which means there it's either a large expense or they're really worried about what's in those documents right. or both. It, it, it could be both. So it's a very interesting case where you've got this amalgam of, of uh, civil procedure kind of coming into and bleeding into a criminal matter and uh, analyzing what, what to do. There was reference to the Sedona conference for those of you that are re- familiar with electronic um, electronically stored information. I won't use the acronym. Uh, and so that's, you know, and how that the best practices are in handling these kinds of things. And that's where I think the court was referencing to, but, uh, um, the court's going to have, I think they're gonna have a hard time, the appellant of overcoming the abuse of discretion that's granted to the district court in this circumstance. I think so too. And, you know, one of the interesting things is, is when I teach, uh, privacy and concerns for lawyers and model rules of professional conduct a- and, you know, the new world we live in, the federal rules of civil procedure were not that, were not amended that long ago. It's only been a, a short period of time where they actually added electronically stored information was subject to discovery rules. And think about how far we've advanced in those, you know, few years in terms of, like you said, the, the broadness of discovery and how much probably more uh, uh, how different it is than, than, you know, 20 years ago when people were looking through boxes and trying to find documents that were only subject to whatever was produced by the other side in the, in the boxes. Well, in Illinois, we only, we, we, the, the federal rules kind of went through a two-step amendment process to deal with these things beginning in the early 2000s. Sedona is like 2003 or 2004 initially. Right. And Illinois did nothing until 2014. Right. And we skipped to the second step and basically adopted the federal rules. But it took till 2014 for us to have any rule that dealt with how to deal with electronically stored information. And this is where the flexibility, it's a flexible test. It's a balancing test. It's a right. uh, benefits and burdens and, and proportionality test that uh, gets utilized. And that's where I think Judge Easterbrook was going. Um, so with that, Dan, I... I, I think uh, we'll move. We'll take our first break and come back and talk about Continental Casualty versus uh, Lloyd's of London. Sounds good. We're back for segment two of episode twenty-two of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to talk about Continental. Casualty versus Lloyd's of London. Nothing like two of the largest insurers in the world going at it. That's right. And one of the entertaining things about doing uh, seven circuit arguments is, number one, it's a hot bench. And number two, they got some great lines. They're they're just great. (laughs) And Judge uh, Wood had one, uh, quote, when you buy arbitration, you buy a certain amount of error. And, And there's a lot there. 
to, to unwrap. Um, judge Wood is the former chief judge of the Seventh Circuit. Um, and first of all, the, her comment kind of presumes that public courts, government courts don't really do error uh, or they or if they do, they get corrected. That's what the Seventh Circuit's for. That's what the Supreme Court could be for, whether it's a state or or uh, the United States Supreme Court. Um, and the other thing is, is that it's it 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 is correct that one does buy private court resolution. I mean, that's what you pay for. They're, the price goes up when you have a monopoly provider of resolu- of of dispute resolution or anything for that matter that's subsidized. Then you have higher costs of the others that are in the market providing those services. You can look at education, look at healthcare, look at dispute resolution. We dispute resolution is a fancy name for court. That's right. Um, and then it also assumes a way that the public courts don't have a price. It just means that it's subsidized. It doesn't cost the parties very much to get into court. It costs you a lot of money to get into a private court, a private arbitration or a mediation. Um, but it doesn't mean it's free. But anyway, this that's that that comment was really interesting, and, and there's we could we could spend all day talking about that. But this is a case about reinsurance arbitration in a reinsurance treaty between Continental Casualty and certain underwriters at Lloyd's. And Judge Wood seemed to be very familiar with the area. And Judge Hamilton admitted something like me, not so much. I mean, I kind of know what it is, but not haven't dealt with it a lot. Judge Wood referred to the policy at issue as quote one of these infamous long-tail occurrence-based policies. Now, we've talked about the distinction between occurrence-based and and claims-made policies before, but this is one of those ones with a long tail because as Dan is going to talk about, it deals with asbestos, which is, you can't get, you can't, you don't need a longer tail than with asbestos for a claims, for an occurrence-based policy. So this is a case where the arbitration went along swimmingly and everybody was okay with the award until... Uh, Continental Casualty asked for a clarification, and boy, did they get a clarification. Be, be <laughs> careful what you ask for, because they were worried about future obligations, and it turned out that, uh, oh, 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 by the way, um, you're not going to get what you want in this regard. Um, and so that's when Judge Wood said, well, that instead of them being outside the scope of their uh, what they can do, which would be improper, and we might strike that down, didn't you submit that question to them by asking them to clarify? And aren't you right back into the general rule that we defer to arbitrators? And that's when the comment about don't you get a certain amount of error when you when you buy arbitration came up. Right. So that kind of sets up the situation. Dan, why don't you tell us about this oral argument and uh, the re- this reinsurance arbitration case? Thanks, Pat. And you know, in the first case, you know, the, the question was why don't you ask for a special master? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't ask, you don't get something. But in this case, it's a, a, as you said, be careful what you ask for or wish for, because you may just get it. And before we uh, talk about the oral argument. And good case, and hard. Right. To quote Mencken. Right. Right. I, I wanted to give a bit of a, a, a primer on, on reinsurance, uh, even for those that are heavily involved in primary insurance and do insurance defense or coverage. The world of reinsurance is a bit different. And there's a few concepts that came up in the argument and that are also just good to know. Uh, and, and, and reinsurance is it's a different type of policy. It's driven when you think about the creation of reinsurance and the market at Lloyd's back in the uh, 16 and 1700s. You, you, it was a, a gentleman's kind of uh, forthcoming, right? And, and you, you were mostly doing maritime stuff where you're taking shipments from you know, Europe over to wherever. 
and, and we're insuring the ships. And so in any event, um, the, the first concept that was talked about a lot at oral argument and is that it is very important for reinsurance contracts and how you interpret them and how you go about your business is the duty of utmost good faith. And what the duty of utmost good faith, it r- runs in both directions, both the reinsured and reinsurer each owe the other a duty of utmost good faith. So what does that mean, utmost good faith? It's it's almost like uh, commercially best efforts or something, but it requires the reinsured, uh, known as the sedent, to disclose to the reinsurer all facts that materially affect the risk of which it is aware and of which the insurer itself has no reason to be aware. And it's important because, as we'll talk about some of the other concepts, reinsurers cannot go about the business of re-examining, uh, re-investigating claims. They have to rely on their underlying sedents to do that. So once the that is done, that the, the sedent discloses all relevant information to the reinsurer, now the reinsurer has an obligation of utmost good faith in evaluating the information and making further inquiries if it doesn't have enough information to make a decision. And these cases go back, as Pat mentioned, this is asbestos. So they go back to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And they are very long tail claims with which, you know, nobody's alive that that probably handled the original uh, claims themselves. And so this utmost good faith is really an obligation to reveal to the other party all important information that exists. The second concept that's talked about and was briefly alluded to in in the appellate argument, but not strongly, was follow the fortunes. And this is a fundamental principle of reinsurance law that a reinsurer is bound to follow the fortunes of its reinsured and all risk encompassed by the reinsured policy. Again, they can't second guess uh, if the the underlying insured uh, has has losses and and depending on the language of the treaty that's involved, uh, whether it's percentage or on a case-by-case basis, that then goes up to the reinsurer, and they follow the fortunes of their sedent uh, reinsured. Uh, and as was stated by the Second Circuit uh, a while ago, the follow the fortunes doctrine burdens the reinsurer with those risks which the direct insurer bears under the direct insurer's policy covering the original insured. Uh, related is follow the settlements, and again, reinsurers must reimburse so long as claim payment arguably was within the terms of the reinsured policy a de novo review by the reinsurer is not permitted. And this came up because uh, what happened with uh, Continental Casualty and the CNA financial team is that they uh, hired and retained Resolute Bandage for all of their runoff business, including this uh, asbestos types of policies. I used to work at CNA Financial, and so disclose that as well. Finally, there's the Honorable Engagements Clause, which means that the arbitration panel which is made up of former executives in insurance and reinsurance, most likely from AAA, I believe it was in this case as well, may not decide a matter as a a court or other tribunal might, as it means that that the obligation is not only a legal obligation. And Judge Hamilton asked about this. I've got to say, as I was reading these materials, I was wondering what, what our Constitution would be like what our constitutional law would be like if there was a clause that said, in fact, you should not worry too much about the literal language, but uh, should uh, carry out the purposes of the preamble of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, this is a, even if these arbitrators were a little more freewheeling than we're used to seeing, that's what, that's what you bargain for, isn't it? 
And he's he's right. I mean, that's that's again, that's the honorable engagements clause permitting permitting these uh, uh, arbitrators who are very knowledgeable and experienced in the industry to make determinations. One of the cases that appellant cited in the oral arguments that was uh, of interest was PMA Capital Insurance Company versus Platinum Underwriters, Bermuda. And this is a case in which in 2010, the Third Circuit found that while arbitrators can abstain from following strict rules of law under such a clause, the court nevertheless asserted that the Honorable Engagement Clause does not authorize arbitrators acting sua sponte to eliminate material provisions of a contract that they are charged with interpreting. So the, the, the reinsurance policy at issue here appeared to be an asbestos cover to address thousands of policies that CCC wrote in the 1960s and 1970s and the buildings that took place. And that, as mentioned during our argument, reference was made to Resolute Management, an entity that took over runoff claims and policies for CNA. And what appears to be at the heart of uh, the clarification by uh, the, the Lloyds, the underwriters at Lloyds, was... Uh, or I, I strike that back by CNA, was that there were uh, two uh, paragraphs in the in the uh, arbitrator's decision, uh, which was unanimous with the final award. And as Pat mentioned, nobody disputed the amounts in the final award, but there was confusion because paragraph two of the order dealt with rebillings and representing of claims on three accounts. And then paragraph three dealt with future billings. And, and it did not specify. And there's 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 lots of accounts. And what an account is is an individual insured, like Acme Construction Company, or uh, you name it. Those are policies that were issued in the '60s and '70s by Continental Casualty to various insureds for product liability or for uh, general liability. And the panel asked a lot of questions about the arbitrator's ability to fashion an order under its role. Uh, Appellant took the position that the panel. And interim order number three, after denying Continental Casualty's request for clarification, uh, cut off future billings. And what what Continental Casualty was trying to get the the judges to buy was that this uh, interim clarification order number three, that as Pat said, cut off future billings on three accounts, uh, that it was beyond the scope of what the arbitrators could do. And as Hamilton mentioned with with that the quote we played. And other judges were asking, including Wood, isn't this what's allowed under the arbitration panel? And you, did you not, Continental Casualty, ask them to clarify what these paragraphs meant? To use an, an, ordinary, an ordinary underlying trial, didn't you invite to the error? Right. That seems to be the, <laughs> the concept that they were going for, is that you asked, you got. Right. And if you didn't ask, you didn't get. Right. And you can't very well come and complain to us when you, as I said, the doctrine of inviting the air. Right. And that's not typically a way or a place that you can appeal if, if you're the one that caused the problem. That's right. And, and, you know, part of it too here was it sounds like just like in the grand jury subpoena that there, there's some evidence in, in the arbitration record and then the record itself uh, that there were some issues with the way that, Resolute management was billing on some of these things and and reapplying the numbers, and that there was confusion or you know some uh, inappropriate billings. And so it sounds like the uh, panel. What, what was inter- what was most interesting about the panel that that Continental Casualty did raise is that right after the order was issued, 
when Continental Casualty asked the umpire about paragraph two and about future billings, uh, the umpire seemed to suggest that, well, that wasn't even what they had been thinking about, right? Or they hadn't contemplated that. But again, they they asked for the clarification. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the what this panel does with this. It will be, Dan. And uh, with that, uh, we'll take our uh, second break and be back with our last case, Bilek versus Federal Insurance Company. A lot of insurance on today's show. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to episode 22 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Our third case that today is Christopher Bialik versus Federal Insurance Company, in which the Seventh Circuit will consider whether TCPA claims, that's the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, were properly dismissed without leave to amend by the district court. The case raises issues regarding sufficiency of pleading under Iqbal and Twombly that are central to federal civil procedure and which we have not yet discussed on the podcast, but will momentarily and just as some background, just like with uh, CCC, I had a relationship to CCC and worked on uh, some treaties like that. And in other roles, I've uh, dealt with some some treaties and innovated them or resolved them. I worked uh, for two and a half years for a life insurance company that had an outbound calling customer service center, kind of like is at issue in this case, that sold via customer service representatives and callers similar to this. And so may provide some color when Pat talks about the oral argument about, you know, some of the positions of Chubb and of the uh, vendor HII, which was the customer service uh, platform. And as, as noted, this case involved telemarketers making calls to customers based on alleged leads that they received from HII to the telemarketers, uh, marketers to sell federal insurance policies, which is a Chubb subsidiary. The court discussed concepts of pleadings at the motion to dismiss stage and the requirement of factual pleadings that are required at the federal level and what was sufficient for pleading stage to show implied actual authority or apparent authority. The Twombly and Iqbal standards were discussed. Pat, why don't you tell us about oral argument in those cases? I have to say that uh, what you may have heard coming across my microphone was a phone call on my cell phone with the voter, the, the caller ID, scam likely. <laughs> well, that is a, no problem. I guess that is part and parcel of this case. Um, so that's how the argument started, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> Judge Hamilton getting a spam call in a case about spam calls <laughs> or alleged spam calls. So that that is, if you were the appellant, that couldn't have gone better uh, in terms of how it started. And I don't think it got much better for the appellate thereafter. Um, so picking up on Dan's uh, point about Iqbal and Twombly. So these are two cases from the middle of last, I guess, two decades ago now, uh, the middle of the aughts, 
where the Supreme Court said you have to plead Illinois or strike that federal court is a notice pleading. So, but it's got to be a little more than that. It's got to be, they have to set forward facts that make a plausible, not possible, not probable. So a little more than possible and a little less than probable. Right. It's plausible. <laughs> you, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, it, and, and the way that Judge Wood described it is it has to put together or stitch together a, quote, story that holds up. And the story that was told here was that they got these list of leads. They had access to the Chubb system for federal insurance. Federal insurance is the umbrella name. Chubb is the trade name. And that it allowed them to make these calls on these leads, provide quotes for these insurance products, and to um, and, and to make these sales. And Chubb's argument was, well, we're two steps removed in this. What do we have to do with this? To which Judge Wood said, if that's the case, you've just destroyed most of American business. Right. I told you they were on fire. And, that's, um, and, and she's right, because that's how business is conducted on almost everything now, right? There's lead generations, and you get a call, or you get an email, and away you go. And so the going back to Iqbal and Twombly very quickly, you've got Rule 8, which deals with the general pleading requirements. And then you've got Rule 9 that deals with the heightened pleading requirements of fraud, fraudulent concealment, things like this, where you have to plead who, what, when, where, why, how, all the things. That's not this. Now, plaintiff tried to argue there was a lower level of pleading for agency. And the court's like, no, no, that's surely, Judge Wood's like, that's surely not the law. Right. But they both were of the of, of the mind that they did enough here to, they seem to be indicated that they did enough here to plead um, and they to plead to get past a motion to dismiss. And they were very skeptical of both the defendants and the district court's order dismissing uh, the case without leave to appeal. And of course, the they asked, why didn't they get a leave to appeal? And Pellant's counsel, very happy, or Pelley's counsel very happily said, they didn't ask. So right. that's why the judge didn't want them. Uh, ask people to get your complaint, uh, to at least get one shot at it. Um, the uh, it, it's it's important to keep in mind that the during an argument y- you should know the cases that are being that are in the briefs. Um, one of the advocates got asked by Judge Hamilton about a case uh, that uh, he didn't know about, right? And he didn't think it was all that important. Judge Hamilton's like, "Well, I think it's kind of the whole case." Well, that that didn't go well, and then. He at, Judge Hamilton asked about uh, the FCC interpretation of this rule, and the counsel said, "Well, that's not very well reasoned," and pushed back and, and cited to the DC Circuit. And uh, Judge Hamilton says, "Well, excuse me, the uh, the 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 Supreme Court cited to this with favor, not without much discussion, to be sure, but that seems to be something we can look at." It's 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 also interesting to note that the justices are or judges rather are very attuned to what's going on. There was a reference that uh, about auto dialers because on the day of this argument, the uh, Facebook versus Do Good case had been handed down, and so this argument probably occurred mid to late, mid morning, late morning uh, Chicago time or in the afternoon. So they had seen that opinion by then. And so they knew the auto dialer case had come out. And that was an opinion where the court rejected the FCC's analysis of what is a auto dialer 
for text messages, which is a different provision to be sure. But they they uh, kind of threw some cold water on what the FCC has to say on on the TCPA, at least and, and in judge, that regard. Judge Wood made a reference. If this were a text message case, and of course it gone via text message, we'd be in a different uh, situation given the Supreme Court. So yeah, but like you said, very attuned to what was happening. Yeah, they knew they knew what had happened earlier that morning. Uh, you know, maybe even minutes or hours beforehand, they knew what what uh, what the Supreme Court was up to. I can't remember if this was the first argument of the day or not. But the uh, the case they really were focused on. Well, how could the plaintiff possibly know the particular arrangements? They haven't had any discovery, and counsel for Apple League just kept coming back to well, they're just conclusions. And there's this strange, there's this strange term that's used in the law, conclusion of fact. I don't, I've never quite understood what that means. Um, it, it, I understand what a conclusion of law is. That I get. Uh, that's the law says X. That's a conclusion of law. The law, the law. You know, th- this is that's this is easy. But a conclusion of fact is is something that I'm not sure what that is, but he was insistent, and the district court apparently was insistent, these were not facts, but these were conclusions to which Judge Wood and Judge Hamilton kept coming back and saying, hold it now. How are they supposed to know these things? And then then counsel for the Apple said, well, this is a different circumstance than what happened to Mr. Bilek. And they said, hold it. This is a class action. This Mr. Bialik's experience may or may not have been represented, but that's a, that's a question for a different day. That's on class certification. That's at summary judgment. This here is you. They're alleging t- thousands or tens of thousands of these calls uh, that were made improperly, that were done for marketing, not even for sales, but for marketing to kind of get the idea out there that we hey we have these insurance products, uh, and. So his particular experience, which apparently the district court handed uh, ha- uh, hung his hat on quite a bit, also didn't impress the uh, the, the judges. So it's a um, it's a case where they are really skeptical of the dismissal uh, and whether there had been enough pled. It, it's it's a rare circumstance where on a pleading motion like this that there's this much skepticism from the circuit court following a dismissal by the district court. Um, and there really seemed to be. Um, I, I don't remember, and I don't know if the third justice on the panel spoke. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he or don't she think, did. But so. Hamilton and Wood, which would be enough to get a reversal, certainly did. And they were very skeptical. Not that they're saying that that the defendants did what's alleged and counsel for appellee or appellant agreed that he'd have to prove these things, but do they get the chance? And that's the question. Dan, what were your thoughts? I, I, I think as, as you mentioned, Pat, I, th- I think uh, a lot of skepticism on the bench and a lot of pushback on, like you said, conclusions of fact and asking the, the appellee, well, what were they supposed to do at the pleading stage? How much could they have known? And wasn't this paragraph and this paragraph and this paragraph, didn't they at least lay out a, a chain? And Yeah, the, the judges were extremely familiar with the complaint. Paragraph 26 says right? X. Paragraph 27 <laughs> says Y. What about paragraphs 30 through 32, counsel? Right. I mean, they had read the, par- the complaint. They knew exactly what it said. And it's something we mentioned before is how prepared 
uh, the judges, all appellate judges uh, and justices, but the Seventh Circuit, given the 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 all the manner of things that they they deal with, how prepared the, the they were, and and especially considering how short the arguments often are, right? Um, and they get right into to what they what they're trying to get at. Um, so with that, Dan, uh, do we want to get to uh, prediction? Sure to go wrong. I think so, and we're now. 15, 0, and 2 in prediction. We didn't make a formal one. We're calling it a win. We're calling it a win. Because if anybody who listened to the episode on Monday, we both thought there was going to be a reversal. Right. We were highly skeptical after listening to Kevin O'Connor and and his explanation of the the chase that continued on and on. Uh, It left us highly skeptical that Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village, the summary judgment grant for the defendants would stand. And the first district found that issues of material fact did in fact exist precluding summary judgment. It'll be interesting to see what happens on remand and whether this comes back up uh, to the first district. I'm, I'm guessing it like it will. So with that, Pat, let's make predictions uh, sure well, to go one wrong. One more thing on before we get sure. to the, sure. before we go further is, is that Kevin sent us the opinion. I don't think it's on the website yet. It's not. But what's interesting about the opinion is they went beyond simply reversing the summary judgment. They went in and addressed each of the additional arguments that the appellees made, the government, the government made, right. and kind of knocked them down one by one. Sometimes in very short order, kind of giving direction to the the trial court, that the circuit court, as to uh, here's what we think about this, and really pointing to the conduct of the really being skeptical that the conduct of the police is going to be able to pass muster um, on remand, uh, and if it comes back uh, with some fa- some uh, result on a dispositive motion that is disfavorable to the plaintiff. Now, it may go to trial, and plaintiff may not be able to prove willful and wanton misconduct, but that's a long way from the judge entering another order. They they were skeptical, um, as evidenced by them going beyond what they really had to do, um, although it's helpful that they did do what they did do. Agreed. Agreed. So let's so look at- So for today- Go ahead. So for today, we have- um, Pardon me, appellee versus appellant. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think appellant uh, uh, has a has a tough road ahead with abusive discretion here. I, I think that's their problem, but I also think that the the judges were understood that this was a bit too this was a bit much what the district court had done, and. Had they asked for a special master, I have almost no doubt that they would have said, yeah, that was an abuse of discretion not to give a a special master. But they also have an obligation to make sure that this doesn't turn into a fishing expedition, that this doesn't that this this doesn't turn into what amounts to a to a warrant. It's a subpoena. It is. Um, But I I, I think I think there's going to be an an affirmance of what the district court did because of the standard of review. Yeah, I think it's I think that's right, and I I think that you know the the district court judge may have again he, he's he or she I, I'm not even sure who the judge is has been dealing with us for two years and with with the behavior of of the appellant. So yeah, I think you're right on the abuse of discretion at least. That brings us to Continental Casualty versus Federal Insurance. In this case, I, th- I think. Continental Casualty has a has a tough road ahead because, as you mentioned, they're the ones that asked for this clarification. And given the broadness of what arbitrators can do in reinsurance contracts, I think uh, uh, they have a tough road to overcome 
this clarification order? Yeah, just like a district court judge on abuse of discretion, the uh, the appellate or the uh, the line is very telling. You buy you buy some error. They may have bought some error, right? Uh, and, and that error in this case may be in the form of you ain't getting more any more dough on these three classes of claims, right? And that brings us to Bialik versus Federal Insurance. Uh, I, I smell a reversal. I, I think you're right. I, I don't see, uh, based on the, the the questioning, as you mentioned, from Wood and and uh, Hamilton, that 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 this case uh, doesn't get reversed. At least give them a shot to replead and, and see if that's enough. Right in some discovery. What was interesting is one of the thing I wanted to add there is is that a lot of the cases that were relied upon by the appellee and apparently by the district court were at the summary judgment stage, and this was at the this was at the motion to dismiss stage. So the summary judgment stage, you've got a lot of discovery, you've got all the things, and some cases didn't even did didn't pass muster then. Well, right. they obviously got past discovery. They got past a motion to dismiss in the first instance. Um, so that'll be that. That's I think another thing that's pretty much in. Uh, favor of the uh, of the appellee in this particular or appellate rather in this particular situation. I, th- I think you're right. And that brings us to the, our rule of the week. And today, Pat, we're going to talk and take a look at Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure 28J letters. 28J provides for supplemental letters to the court when the practitioner discovers pertinent and significant authorities. And 28J provides. If pertinent and significant authorities come to a party's attention after the party's brief has been filed or after all arguments but before decision, a party may promptly advise the circuit clerk by letter with a copy to all other parties, setting forth the citations. The letter must state the reasons for the supplemental citations, referring either to the page of the brief or to a point argued orally. The body of the letter must not exceed 350 words. Any response must be made promptly and must be similarly limited. Pat, tell us a little more about this rule. So a lot of things that happen in federal court, that happen in uh, appellate court, happen by letter. Um, that is not something that's unusual. Um, the uh, In our new opening, one of the things we play is a, thing, is a, is a bit from a case where a video uh, went to Judge uh, Easterbrook, and he wasn't very happy about it not being in a format that he could open because apparently he uses a Mac product, and it was only available on, on a Windows platform, which led to the question: Are you in the are you in the pay of the uh, Microsoft Corporation? Uh, and the the lawyer said, "Well, I can email you a, uh, in a different format." No, you will not be emailing us anything. We're going to go through the process to to supplement the record and get it to us properly. Do that, okay. But we also had, we, we talked about this in Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village, where there was supplemental authority that came up two days before the oral argument from the Supreme Court, the Madrid versus Torres case. And while that's in state court, you could certainly file a motion to ask to, fi- uh, to cite supplemental authority. That's certainly something that could happen. Uh, but in federal court, you do it by 28J letter. But also, it came up in the context in the appellee versus appellant case, where they said, well, you may send us a letter. There's some things you might want to discuss publicly. Maybe you'll send us a letter under seal, and we'll ask you to do that and have the and have the appellant. This was to the government on the ratio issue, and they said, you know, maybe we'll have you send a letter. So, so many things are done. Not many, but certainly more frequently, things are done via letter in appellate court, certainly in federal court, 
then are done uh, in, in, in the trial level. Everything's done by motion. You know, you're going to communicate with the court, file a motion. Right. But sometimes they're done by letter. Uh, it, it seems more informal, but it's it, it works in, in the appellate process. Do you, do you think the advocate and bylaw should be filing a supplemental based on the questions from from the from the bench that he, that he wasn't aware of the one case, or probably let it lie, right? <laughs> yeah, he should let that lie. It, 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 he's got enough other problems. Um, he he, you know. He got asked a question he didn't know the answer to that Judge Hamilton thought he should have known, and that's just going to have to be how it is. Right. Um, I don't think he can correct that by 28J letter. <laughs> so with that, Dan, that brings us to the end of, uh, of episode 22. We'll be back next Sunday for episode 23, and hopefully there are some more arguments because there was a dearth of arguments this week because it was it was uh, holiday week and not much going on. So... Uh, uh, hopefully we get some more next week and uh, we'll look forward to speaking with everybody then. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter and on behalf of my co-host Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.